Our good Father, we ask that your word given to us would be a lamp unto our feet, it would be a light unto our path, that by it we would see your beloved Son, Jesus, and by your Spirit we might be changed. And it's in your name we pray. So when the COVID crisis initially hit, I think all of us tried to cope with it in all of our different ways, and one of the ways that I tried to adjust to all the instability was by planting a garden. And so with the help of, of a good friend, we built a fence six feet around this area. Uh, I tilled the soil, I planted seeds, I watered and watched it grow, and it was a great success. And so when springtime came around this year, I decided to do it again. But early this summer, something unexpected happened as I began to uh, inspect more carefully just the plants that were growing, what I noticed is that some of them were turning this kind of yellowish brown color. And, and I was, what I thought I was doing was a good job taking care of them, but slowly it seemed like plant after plant was just turning shades and slowly dying. And so it started with my squash, it moved to my zucchini, and then ultimately it started going to my tomatoes. And, and what I noticed in these tomatoes that I was beginning to pick is that part of them looked, looked beautiful. It was, it was ripe. It was red. It looked juicy. But on the other side, there was this crater that you could see almost to the core. And it was this place where just rottenness was setting in. And then when I researched to try to find out what was taking place in my garden, what I what I read a lot about was, was what's called a, a blight. And basically what that is, is it's a fungus that grows, that produces these spores called phytophora, which literally means plant destroyer. So you don't want these spores spreading across your entire garden, but that's, that's just what it did. And so my hopes initially in this garden were to grow good fruit that would be for the good of others, for myself, my family, my friends to be able to enjoy. In the community that John is writing to, what he is seeing is he is seeing the good news of Jesus spread. These seeds of gospel are being planted and it's growing up. Good things are happening. Lives are being changed. It's taking root. It's being watered. It's growing, it's giving life, but at the same time, what we also find out is some of the leaves on this community of faith are starting to turn yellow. There is a group of people that end up splitting off and begin living and teaching some things that are very contrary to how Jesus lived and to what Jesus taught. And, and John is writing to this community that over and over again he refers to as his beloved or as as his dear children. It's people that he deeply cares about. And he is writing to encourage them in what they have learned and in what they have been taught. And he's also writing to warn them against some very real dangers that threaten the life of this early community. When Jesus was explaining his heart and his purposes to his disciples early on, one of the images that he loved to use was that of a gardener. He says at one point, you did not choose me, but I chose you. 
that you might bear fruit, fruit that will last. So what we see over and over again through Jesus and through his disciples is that God's heart for us is that we might bear fruit and that that fruit might last, that that fruit might be for the good of the world. And that's the design of the church, to bear good fruit for the good of the world. But if you've been a part of the church for any length of time, or even if you haven't, you know that so often what we see is something very different. And so we need help. If, if our lives individually and our lives together is going to bear this kind of fruit that's going to be for the good of the world, then we need guidance from Jesus and from his word. And so the help and direction that John gives us is fairly simple, but it's going to need to be unpacked. We, we bear good fruit for the good of the world by keeping his commandments. We bear good fruit for the good of the world by keeping his commandments. Now, that, that doesn't sound exciting. At least it doesn't sound exciting to me. But I think as we unpack it, we will begin to see a bigger vision of why this is something that uh, is inviting all of who we are and is will energize even our lives for the good of others. And so if we're going to take this seriously, there are four questions that we need to ask. And that's what we're going to go through this morning. First, who? Who, who are, who's the one giving these commandments? Second, what are we being commanded to do? Third, why? Why is it that these matter to us? And fourth and finally, how? How do we become this type of people? And so who, what, why, and how? We'll walk through these together. So first, who? Uh, when, when people hear the word command, many immediately feel this, um, this sense of, of being on guard. We don't like to be told uh, what to do how to live, what to say, how to be. And we tend to be very suspicious of people that enter into our lives with those purposes. And some of these suspicions that we hold are for very good reasons, but other of these suspicions need to be challenged. When I think about parenting and my kids, there tend to be two main reasons why my children do what I ask them to do, when they do what I ask them to do. Uh, they are either afraid of what will happen if they don't do what I ask them to do, or they really do trust that I am for them and what I'm asking them to do is for their good and for the good of others. My, my desire, and I think this is the desire of, of any parent who loves their child, my desire is that they would genuinely trust that so much of my life is given and spent for their good. And the things that I am asking them, the ways in which I am guiding them, hopefully flow out of a heart that says, I would do anything for you. And I'm not trying to make your life difficult or miserable or hard. I'm not trying to squash the fun out of your life. But I want you to experience life in its fullness. When it comes to our relationship with God, we see the same dynamic of fear and trust 
at work. But when it comes to John's words, there's no confusion over whose commands they are. Verse 3, his commandments. Verse 4, his commandments. Verse 5, his words. So the belief that we hold is these words that John is passing along are words that come originally from the mouth and heart of Jesus himself. And the question that every one of us in here has to come to terms with is, what is the heart behind these commands? Is it a heart that is for us, or is it a heart that is against us? Put a different way, why should we take these words to heart and willingly, why should we willingly put ourselves under the authority and guidance of another? And this is where going back to some material we've already covered in this book, we're given a glimpse into this very heart. These words come from someone who is light, someone who has no shadow side. In him there is no darkness. These words come from someone who is faithful, who is perfectly just. These words come from someone who forgives, someone who makes clean and washes. These words come from someone who never lies, someone who identifies himself as our advocate, someone who will relentlessly fight for our good. These words come from someone who gave his life for us, who who held nothing back in his wild pursuit of us, who became a sacrifice for us, all to draw us into this life-giving relationship with God and to give us eternal life. In short, these words come from a heart that can be trusted. A heart that's not trying to control us in a, in a manipulative way. It's not a heart that is power hungry or seeking to undermine our well-being, but it is the heart of a faithful father who says, I am for you and will do anything for you. But if you go back all the way to Genesis 3 in the beginning, and when you see the world gone wrong, you see it starts with this simple question. Can God really be trusted? Can we really take him at his word or do we need to go on our own way and figure out life on our own terms? That is the question that broke the world. And so the pathway to a fruitful life for the good of the world begins with placing ourselves, all of us, under the authority and the heart who is truly for us. But that gets us to our next question. What are these commandments? What is it that we are commanded to do? How we are commanded to live? So every state has these old and obscure laws that nobody pays attention to anymore. But they're still on the books. They're still officially laws. So I found some of these on one website. So in Georgia, our great state, those engaged in llama-related activities such as riding, training, or goofing around at a county fair, are responsible for any personal injuries they suffer. In Minnesota, any contest in which participants try to capture a greased or oiled pig is illegal. 
In California, a frog that dies during a frog jumping contest cannot be eaten. It must be destroyed as soon as possible. And my personal favorite for you hunters, if you're wanting to go up in West Virginia and have a good time, anyone who catches, takes, kills, injures, or pursues a wild animal or bird with a ferret <laughs> will face a fine of no less than $100 up to 100 days in jail. So all of your ferret hunting plans in West Virginia, you have to put those on hold or just be very careful. <laughs> it's easy for us to think about God's commandments in the same way. There's, they're old, there's a lot of them, and they don't connect with life. They are outdated and they are irrelevant. But when we look closer, what we see is something very different. Here's what John says in chapter 3 later on. He says, this is his commandment. This is what I love about John. He's trying to be as, as clear as he can. He is not trying to confuse us. This is his commandment, that we believe or trust in the name of his son Jesus, and that we love one another, just as he commanded us. That we trust in his son, and that we love one another. That's it. And John is not being creative here. John is taking exactly what Jesus said. And Matt alluded to this earlier. When someone asked him, what's the most important command that we, that we should be in tune with? Jesus says, here it is. Love the Lord your God, all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Because everything else, Jesus says, all the laws, the prophets, everything hinges on these two. Everything is derived from these two. Everything points back to these two. Love God. Love one another. But we often do. As simple as they are, we do have difficulty connecting the dots of what they look like in life. And that's where Scripture teases it out. And here I want to focus more on, on this loving one another because John brings that out in our passage and elsewhere. So when you think about or when you ask the question, what does a fruitful life look like in how we treat one another? Here are some of the answers given in different places of Scripture. It means we don't devour one another. We don't envy one another. We don't complain against one another. We don't judge one another. We don't lie to one another. But we welcome one another. We bear with one another. We are kind to one another. We are tender-hearted towards one another. We forgive one another. We seek the good of one another. We serve one another. We are devoted to one another in love. We honor one another. We are subject to one another. We are to clothe ourselves in humility towards one another. We are to bear one another's burdens. We are to speak the truth in love to one another. We are to encourage one another. We are to build one another up. We are to pray for one another. We are to show hospitality to one another. And again and again and again, we are to love one another. If we sit with that, what we will see is that this 
command that God gives is not something that is obscure, but it is incredibly relevant to how we live our lives every day. They are clear guidance of how we live a life of faith and love with every single person that we meet. But God's posture towards us, once again, isn't just, this is what you are supposed to do, so do it. And that brings us to our, our next question of why. Why should we keep these commandments? Why bother? And there are, very, are many different reasons that the Bible gives. And here John focuses on two specifically. And the first is this. We're to keep commandment like this because they are old. Beloved, verse 7, he says, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. What he means is I'm, this isn't a new TED talk that I'm coming up with a new idea. It's something, it's a tried and true way of life that has been passed down from generation to generation from the beginning. It's tapping into the very DNA of what it means to be human and made in the image of God. 1 John 3.11, later on. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. What is it? That we should love one another. Go back to the very beginning. When humanity was created, the language that's used is that we were created in his image. What that means is that we were created to be a reflection of him. Reflecting his mind, his heart, his purposes to the world around us. Extending his kingly and gracious reign throughout the earth. In other words, when people look at you, when people look at your life, when people look at the way that you interact with one another... The design is that they would get a beautiful glimpse on what God is really like. When people look at your life, how clear of a picture of God and his heart do they get? That's what we're being directed back to, this pattern of being hardwired and made in the image of God. That's what's old about it. It's it's a way of life that God says, this is how life works best, and this is what I've designed you for. But then the other reason John gives for why we should follow this seems to be saying the exact opposite. He says it's not just an old commandment, but it's also a new commandment. Verse 8, at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light already shining. So how does this old thing become new all of a sudden? And here's the key. There's something that has happened in history, something decisive that has occurred that began this movement where what John says that darkness is beginning to pass away and true light is beginning to already shine forth. Something is happening that took a very old and good command and didn't change it, but brought it in greater fullness, in greater clarity, in greater beauty. Think about Jesus on the night before 
He is crucified. He's with his disciples. And you remember him washing his disciples' feet. And then he gives these words to them to love one another as I have loved you. What Jesus is saying there and what he's going to show ultimately is there's something about the way he is loving. There's something about what he is going to do that is going to revolutionize how they understand love. Not change it, but bring it to new heights. Bring it to new clarity. Give it a fuller beauty. Think about it this way. So a few weeks ago, uh, Eleanor Shaw stood up here and she shared about a need that takes place in our community and in our world right now. And so we're, we're taking up supplies to fill out these Afghan refugee kits in order to serve, in order to send to families in need. And the verse that she talked about to, to kind of explain a motivating factor behind that was this beautiful verse from Deuteronomy 10. And it says, God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving food and clothing. Therefore, love the sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Do you see the logic behind that? What God is saying to these people is, remember how I treated you when you were sojourners, when you were lost, when you were helpless, and how I brought you out of the land of Egypt and placed you in a good land. Remember what I have done for you and let that shape and guide and sustain how you treat those around you. And if you read through the Old Testament over and over again, the, the core motivating reason for how God's people should live is the exodus. So God's saying over and over again, remember what I've done to you. Remember what I've done for you. Now live as my people. But what we see, what we see on the cross is the heart of God with new clarity. We see a God who's not only from a distance delivering his people with power out of a place of slavery and into this fresh land. What we see is God himself on a cross, bloody, beaten, humiliated, mocked, shamed, nailed between two thieves, helpless, dying for us. That is, that is a window into God's heart like nobody has ever been given before. And when John says this is a new commandment, and Jesus himself in John 13 says this is a new commandment, that's what he's talking about. And he says, love one another as I have loved you. He's saying something has happened. I've, I've shown you the depth and the height and the breadth and the extent of my love for you in a new way. And I want that to sink in. I want that to change and give you a new imagination and creativity for how you move towards those around you, especially those you don't like. This brings us to the final point. How do we live this kind of love? Because we know two things. People are difficult to love. Yes, that includes you. Uh, yes, that includes me. People are difficult to love. Also, our hearts 
are not always inclined towards loving other people. Our knee-jerk reaction to being hurt, to being cut off, to being slandered against, to being wounded is not to be patient, to be kind, to be sacrificial, to be forgiving. Our knee-jerk response is to get into self-defensive mode and attack strategically. How do we become a different kind of people? I'm going to close with this. It's a word that John hones in here. He gets it from Jesus, and he'll tease it out later on that we'll get to. And it has to do with this word, abide. John is taking an idea that is very close to Jesus' heart. Where Jesus said in the, in the lesson that Helen read, Jesus said, I'm the vine. You are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. The picture he gives us there is of a branch that's been cut off from every source of life. He's saying, I want you to be reconnected to me. The only way you will bear this kind of fruit is by finding your hope, your life, your joy, your identity in me as the giver of all life. If you look for it elsewhere, if you attach the branch of your life to all these other places, it will not work. How do we bear fruit for the good of the world? By keeping his commandments. How do we keep his commandments? By loving one another. How do we love one another? By finding all that we are in his love for us, most clearly revealed on the cross at Calvary. Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. May it be so for us. Let's pray. Our good Father, we pray for you to give us life through your Son, who is the true vine. We pray that you would make us into a fruitful people, and that the fruit that is born would be for the good of the world. We pray that you would open up our eyes, our hearts, to your great love, most clearly seen in Jesus, your Son, and that you would make us a people who love one another, who are quick to speak a kind word, who are quick to forgive and to serve and to lay down our lives for not only our friends, but also for our enemies, because that is what you have done for us. Make it so. You are a good Lord.